Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, October 27th. I'm Andrew Walworth. The three-week search for a Speaker of the House finally ended on Wednesday when House Republicans settled on Representative Mike Johnson from Louisiana to fill the leadership position. Johnson is a relatively unknown Trump ally, and he faces many of the same challenges that cost his predecessor the job. His first legislative task was to pass a bill supporting Israel, and 15 Democrats refused to go along, raising questions about the divide over Israel within the Democratic Party and how that schism may affect President Biden's decisions in the Middle East, as well as his re-election bid. And California Governor Gavin Newsom was in China this week, talking about renewable energy, making nice with Chinese leaders, and at least to some, looking presidential. Joining me to talk about all this are Real Clear Politics president and co-founder Tom Bevan, Washington Bureau Chief Carl Cannon, and White House correspondent Phil Wegman. So, Tom, uh, I don't know if you had Mike Johnson on your bingo card, uh, but I think it is fair to say that he's a new face to most Americans. Uh, what do we know about him and what challenges does he face as he takes up the speaker's gavel? Well, he he faces the same challenges that his predecessor faced, which is trying to manage a a very slim majority. I have to say, so I was in Washington, D.C. last week, and this is on, uh, I think, a Wednesday, and I had lunch with Rick Santorum Mm -hmm. um, and was talking to him, and he said, this this is back when it was – uh, still, you know, Jordan was in the mix and like none of the nine had announced Tom Emmer had n- none of that stuff had happened yet. So this is a week and ago, Wednesday. This is like a week ago, Wednesday. Years. Seems like a million years ago. He said to me at that lunch, he said, watch out for this guy, Mike Johnson. And I was like, who? Mike Johnson. He's like, he supported me when I ran for president. He's super smart. And, you know, I'm I think he was giving him encouragement to run, but he said, watch out for this guy. He's super smart. Um, and, and he could be a dark horse in this race. I'm telling everybody I know, you know, watch out for Mike Johnson. And I was like, okay, whatever, you know, <laughs> I uh, hadn't Andy, heard of him. Wait, is this the time I'm supposed to break in as a bureau chief and say, Hey Tom, where was that story? Why didn't you write that for us? <laughs> I mean, honestly, if I had, you know, gone to the political betting markets and put a hundred dollars down on him, I'd be a rich man right now. But yeah, but that's a nice little diversion, Tom. Why didn't you write that? <laughs> we'd have had we'd have scooped it the world, my man. Gossip, lunchtime gossip. I didn't, you know, I didn't give it any credence. Why would I? Props to uh to former Senator Rick Santorum. Apparently he knows a lot about what's going on in the House of Representatives that a lot of other people didn't know. I mean, it was really remarkable to watch this whole thing kind of crescendo with this with all these candidates coming forward, Emmer's bid collapsing as Donald Trump kind of, you know, stuck the knife in. And and this consensus emerged around a guy who literally a lot of folks had not heard of, hadn't came out of the, out of nowhere basically, backbencher from Louisiana, um, and and now he's the you know third in line to the presidency. It was pretty shocking, and uh, we'll see how he does managing his caucus. Obviously, he's getting he's getting some of the treatment from the media and the scrutiny that he's you know he's radical right winger and, and all of those things. He obviously is conservative, and there's no question he's more conservative than Kevin McCarthy. So, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how he manages the moderates in the House and and tries to keep this thing together and get the the GOP governing train back on the tracks. 
So, Carl, to that point, Newsweek, uh, this is what they said. Don't let the facade fool you. Johnson will be the most extreme leader of either chamber of Congress in modern American history. Might be a little early for that kind of judgment, but uh, what do you think? It's ridiculous. (laughs) Um, He's a very conservative person, an evangelical Christian. He was he was a member of the Little Remembered Civility Caucus. He believes in speaking. He doesn't He doesn't traffic in character assassination, which is more than I can say for his critics. I mean, I've, I've re- we've seen all this invective about him. Jackie Combs, who I know right in the LA Times, and she, she's, she says, look, Matt Gates won. You know, he got, he got rid of McCarthy. He got this guy. And I, I, I love Jackie, and she's a great reporter, but I think that's the wrong way to look at it. What we have here is a person... Uh, who people trust. They trust his word. Um, and I and the fact that Matt Gates is crowing doesn't do a thing for me. I mean, who cares about that? Let's uh, I mean, if that's really what you want to go by, let, let's go to the every single member of the Democratic Party conference because they all voted to get rid of McCarthy. They, more than Matt Gates and these seven confused Republicans, are responsible for this man being the Speaker of the House. They, Carl, this you, is their you, guy. You've said they that. got him. You've said that. Every show we've been on, you've blamed I'm going to keep saying that until somebody other than me reports it this way, Andy. <laughs> you're you're what a very was the, lonely voice on that point. I'm just going to point that out. Okay. Well, what was the Democrats' endgame? Did they think they were going to get somebody more liberal than McCarthy? Did they think they were going to get Hakeem Jeffries? What did they think was going to happen? This was bound to happen. And, uh, you know, look, until let's give this guy benefit doubt, uh, Speaker Johnson, because he he seems like a decent guy, ever so much more conservative than I am. That's for sure. But but he hadn't done anything wrong yet. And you can't say that about these other people in the House. You can't say that about, you know, I look, Steve Scalise was the guy. He was the he was the next in line. He's from Louisiana. They picked a guy from Louisiana, nobody ever heard of. I mean, it's pretty strange. I remember I was at the 1988 convention in New Orleans, which is also in Louisiana. And uh, one of the few bets I've lost, Tom will be happy to hear this because he's always losing bets to me. But I bet Charlie Green of Knight Ritter Newspapers, and he came back from a meeting. He says, I think Bush is going to pick Dan Quayle. I said, well, that's not going to happen. He says, why? I said, well, normally if you pick a Republican senator from a state you're going to carry anyway, you pick the best senator from that state. And everybody laughed. And he said, well, would you want to bet on us? Charlie, I ain't going to bet on you. But if it's Dan Quayle instead of Richard Luger, I'll eat my hat, which is an old phrase that Philip wouldn't know because he's too young. Um, anyway, so the next day I came in and I had this expensive Stetson straw boater and I had to take a ch- I didn't eat the whole hat, but I took a big chunk right out of it and ruined the hat because I didn't welch on the bet. <laughs> this reminds me of that. So it's, it's not Quail or Richard Luger. It's it's uh, it's Mike Johnson instead of Steve Scalise. It's a surprise. Look, the Democrats set this up for the, they they did this to themselves. They are the last people who can complain. And that this that this you know preening fool Matt Gates is is pretending to be happy about. I don't care about that one way or the other. Well, Phil, it does seem that he had a couple things going for him, which we've some of which we've talked about. He was very conservative. Uh, Donald Trump supported him, but I think most importantly, he has almost no fingerprints. I mean, he has unlike everyone else who who sort of has stepped up and been denied the position. He didn't have a record to run on. How are the Democrats viewing this and and how do you view it? Well, I would push back slightly and say that while it's true that Johnson was very careful not to forge a lot of early alliances when he came to Congress in 2016 and not to allow himself to be 
branded so quickly by his opponents or the press. Johnson was uh, a member of the Republican Study Committee. I don't mean to disparage uh, Senator Santorum, but I haven't seen his sweater vest in the, uh, the halls of Congress in some time. But we <laughs> at Real Clear Politics did pay very close attention to uh, Representative Johnson when he was with the Republican Study Committee. And when he was there, um, you know, I remember interviewing him uh, in 2020, and his focus was trying to turn the Republican Party into a more reform-minded, blue-collar conservatism. And I think that that is relevant here today, not because those proposals will make it into law. I'm very curious to see what the legislative posture of the House will be under Johnson. But I think that that tells us a couple things right off the bat. First, yes, he is very conservative, but it's a different kind of conservatism than what we saw from a Paul Ryan, who was a sort of classic old school limited government type, or even Kevin McCarthy, who was much more malleable. Yes, Johnson you know, believes in limited government, but he sees a a more expanded role for government in certain areas. And he has sort of been at the forefront of this Republican realignment, where you try and take some of these conservative principles and align them with what the populist base is requiring. So I'm interested to see how he sort of you know, maybe squares that circle as Speaker of the House and, and try to make tries to make deals. But right off the bat on Thursday, Uh, at the White House press briefing, as Johnson was meeting with President Biden for the very first time, the White House was asked if they think that this guy is a MAGA extremist. And they referred back to his own comments. And what the White House referred me to was a picture of him with uh, the former president. Uh, They pointed to his alliance. So by all accounts on the right, he's pretty reasonable. He's a former constitutional lawyer, seems like a smart guy. But already we see um, hints of the left pointing back to some of the things that he did at the Republican Study Committee, some of the positions that he took before office to say, no, no, this guy's just another extremist. Well, hell, Phil, two can play that game. I've got pictures I could show them of Bill and Hillary Clinton at one of Donald Trump's weddings. I mean, what, is that, what does that prove? <laughs> There's a look, lot of what we know about Bill the, Clinton at weddings. Look, what we know about this guy, and I know Andy wants to get to this in another segment, is his first order of business, besides giving a sort of anodyne and conciliatory speech, was to have you know have a motion come before the house uh in support of Israel and you had 16 democrats wouldn't support it and one republican and one 15 democrats and one republican i think is that right yeah correct uh, they're starting to run these campaign ads that everybody every republican is an extremist well that's a pretty extreme view i i saw that and i started laughing I said, oh now i know why the democrats didn't want a speaker at all they didn't want anybody to hold them to account so Look, the guys. Well, I didn't say I believed them, Cannon. I just said what they're arguing. <laughs> Fair enough. I want to ask one question, then I do want to talk about that vote and the and the Democrats. But I'm wondering how much does it matter when you're the speaker? Uh, these sort of ideological questions, because the speaker's job is to move the caucus forward. It's to raise money. It's to get you know good candidates to step forward. I mean, there's a lot to it that is just sort of the nuts and bolts and blocking and tackling of retail politics, if you will. So is it fair at this point to sort of judge him on his, what some feel is an extreme MAGA ideology or something like that, for good or for ill? Or should we be focusing on, hey, is this a guy who can get the trains to run on time, especially given the difficulty he's going to have with this tiny, tiny majority in the House? 
No, that's a great question. Look, the job does have a lot of requirements in terms of raising money and you know being the face of the party and and all of those things. But I do think the the ideological makeup of the individual, the orientation that he or she brings to the job is important. And to Phil's point, you know, when when Paul Ryan was running the house, John Boehner was running the house, their ideological orientation was sort of the backdrop to the legislative push that was going through the house in the same way that, you know, when Newt Gingrich came in, I mean, his, his ideological sort of perspective and, and viewpoint informed a lot of, of what he did legislatively, right? The contract with America, all that stuff. And so I do think to the extent that Mike Johnson's background is focused on trying to push populist policies for, for blue collar workers and the like, that that is reflected in what the, what the legislative push in the house is, I think does matter. I think it does matter. And it matters, especially given the the political moment that we find ourselves in. Um, and especially if Donald Trump's going to end up being the nominee of, of the Republican party, uh, which it looks like he is at this point. I mean, we're, we're at, you know, almost Halloween uh, the year before. So I think, uh, but we'll see, he's going to have to, are you saying Trump th- scares you? Why did you bring up Halloween? Tom? <laughs> I just looked at the calendar. It's like five days from Halloween. Can, can I add something, Andy, to what Tom's saying? Sure. Then I, we got to move I, on, I, but go ahead quickly. I, okay. I agree with all that, but I, and I want to add, but I want to add one more thing. Beginning the speaker's job historically in this country, it was a legislative function. It was, you were judged mostly in Washington by people who followed Capitol Hill closely, either the members or the people who, who, who covered it or who cared about it. That began to change. The, the biggest change was Chip O'Neill's speakership. And he was such an outsized personality and an easy target. And the Reagan people made him, he, the Reagan people tell you tip started. He went after Reagan first. Well, fine. That's I'll be agnostic on that, but they made him into a campaign issue. That's happened to one degree or another with every speaker since, um, notably with the speaker that Tom mentioned, Newt Gingrich, and with Nancy Pelosi. They became a target, a punching bag, a fundraising machine for the opposite party. You know, Kevin McCarthy was this fundraising juggernaut for his party, but these speakers are also, they're demonized and made into figures of ridicule. And I don't know how that was going to work with McCarthy because, you know, you know, Kevin, we hardly knew you, but I think it's going to be harder. Mike Johnson fo- forms in a mo- model more like Boehner, I would say. It, he's As a personality, he, he, he's not going to make himself the issue constantly, the way these other people, Pelosi and, and Gingrich and, and Tip did. And so what Tom said is right. But to make the speaker a caricature for the opposition party, I, it may prove tougher mm. with Mike Johnson. Well, I guess we're going to see. But as we mentioned, the one of the well, the first thing he did really uh, legislatively was to get this uh, vote to support Israel. And as we mentioned, um, I think it was actually let me see, uh, nine Democrats voted against it, uh, six voted present, one Republican voted uh, against it as well. Phil, over in the White House, when they look at this sort of thing, and you know, you look at these polls of young people uh, and their changing views on um, on uh, the Middle East, is that causing the White House to sort of, you know, trim their sails a little bit. It does seem like he's moderating his support for Israel. Might be too strong to put it, but but I sense a change. I'm wondering if you sense the same thing, and how much of that is due to domestic politics. There's no doubt that the White House is keeping a close eye on their left flank, and 
when I asked uh, Corrine Jean-Pierre about this new Harvard-Harris poll, which shows that 51% of 18 to 24-year-olds think that Hamas's actions can be justified, she didn't have much of an answer. And when I asked them specifically about some of these proposals by Senator Rubio, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, to pull the student visas of uh, you know foreign demonstrators who are in support of Hamas, the White House told us that um, you know they stand by the First Amendment. So, you know, I, I think that what we're seeing play out in the White House currently is they are trying to stand with the Jewish people, but also re- leave you know a little bit of room for some of the the criticism of Israel. Because before this terror attack, uh, the Biden administration was holding Netanyahu at arm's length, and they were very critical of some of the decisions that he has made. I don't want to overplay that past criticism, though, because we have seen the president and his administration um, not just rally to Israel's uh, aid and and call for for military support in terms of munitions and other things, uh, but the president was was pretty frank. Um, he followed up uh, on a question that we asked uh, John Kirby and Corinne Jean Pierre when when we asked whether or not the numbers. Um, for civilian pa- casualties coming out of uh, Palestine were, were accurate. And um, on Wednesday, the press secretary told us that uh, those numbers coming from the Gaza Health Ministry should be looked at with some skepticism. And then on Thursday, uh, the president faced a lot of criticism for for saying that he didn't trust those numbers because the Gaza Health Ministry is a, a front for Hamas. So that's, that's a, a sort of controversial stance to take if you're, you know, a progressive foreign policy uh, wonk. But I think that, you know, while the the White House is monitoring how this plays out domestically, at least for now, um, they're they're airing 99% of the time in, in favor of Israel. And, you know, as this war continues, perhaps they, they might moderate. But um, as of now, yeah, I mean, they, they are full throated in support of their, uh, their in support of Israel. Tom, how do you see it? Yeah, I agree with Phil. I mean, listen, John Kirby was asked by a reporter in the White House press briefing room on Thursday whether the president was being insensitive to uh, Palestinians by saying that, you know, innocents will die in this war and that that's the price of war and asked if the president would apologize. And Kirby was really I mean, he gave a fantastic answer, very strong. He said, no, he said, and she said, well, isn't that pretty harsh? And he said, what's harsh is actually, you know, Hamas using civilians as shields and taking hostages and, you know, parachuting into a music festival and slaughtering innocent people. And so he was very, very, I mean, it was a really uh, eloquent and effective uh, statement, I thought. And so in that sense, I think the administration continues to, to really, um, be strong and forceful and forthright. Um, even as to Phil's point, I think they are nervously watching what's going on. I mean, you see some of this commentary that's out there. Muslim Americans are writing like this president lost me. I'm never going to vote for him again. And, and, and those kinds of things. Um, and you certainly have folks on the, on the very, you know, the progressive wing, the, the squad and that section of the party that are, are very unhappy with the administration and the stance that, that the president uh, and his folks have taken on this. And and we'll see whether that ends up being a factor 
you know, it's not like they're going to go vote for Donald Trump. But if 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 some of those folks stay home, it could be a problem in some of these races uh, or some of these some of these really close states. But but for right now, I think the administration is holding pretty strong to a a pro Israel, um, you know, really standing shoulder shoulder to shoulder with Israel, um, despite some of the misgivings that folks on the left are having domestically. And if I could jump in really quickly, Republicans have hammered Biden for at once condemning anti-Semitism and Islamophobia because they think that that is a sort of false equivalence in terms of the scope of the problem. But what I did find very interesting was that Minority Leader Mitch McConnell went to the floor in the Senate and accused the White House of both sideism. And he called out Corinne Jean-Pierre specifically for an answer that she gave about Islamophobia to a question that had to do with anti-Semitism. Yeah, but she misheard the question, Phil. I, I think I think <laughs> I, I, you know not to not to litigate that specific um, Q and A. You know, I, I would point to the very first press conference that the White House had on October 10th after these terrorist attacks, when we asked them, Real Clear Politics asked about some of these members of Congress, these members of the squad who seem to be equating the Hamas terror attack with past actions of the Israeli military. And Karine Jean-Pierre was unequivocal. It, it was a very rare, completely straight answer. She said that those statements were disgusting. And she said, point blank, there are not two sides to this. So Republicans haven't quite yet figured out how to hit the administration on Israel because you know they, they've been pretty straightforward. You know, on some questions, sure they're they're still progressive and still liberal, and they're still skeptical of Israel. But for the most part, they they've been explicit. There are not both sides to this thing. Uh, the White House says that they they stand with Israel. But Carl, that's what's happening now. If this thing gets as bad as some people think it's going to get, um, and you have this pro-Palestine, I wouldn't call them pro-Hamas, but pro-Palestinian caucus, if you will, in the in the House. Uh, you've got this polling we know about how young people are, are viewing this. At what point does the White House sort of look at the domestic political equation and feel they do have to trim their sails? Because there are fairly large Arab uh, and Muslim populations in some of the important swing states, and I'm thinking about Michigan in particular. And if you've got a four-way race going and you've got uh, a lot of options there, you know they may not vote for Trump, but they may vote for Cornell West, or they may decide to stay home, or they may do anything. If you were advising the White House, would it bear watching? If I was advising the White House right now, Andy, if uh, Joe Biden called me up and said, uh, come talk to me, and I, and I would say, of course, I never advise uh, I never get politicians advice. And if Biden said, yes, but Carl, it's wartime. Your commander in chief demands your counsel. Uh, I would have a very easy job because I would basically tell him to do exactly what he's doing. Mm. This guy's had perfect pitch on this. I mean, partly what Phil and Tom said, I agree with, but it's a, a slight nuanced difference. To me, this is a, this is a giant sister soldier moment. And for our listeners who are too young to understand that, uh, Google it, but you know, you got this this the 15 people the, the squad members who won't who won't endorse Israel that's to Biden's benefit that makes him look reasonable the, you know you got this rogues gallery of left-wing kooks and 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 you know performative art people i i imagine half those people actually would 
would vote for Israel if you know if they thought it mattered. I think they're trying to send a message to their own base. Uh, Biden's handled this well. Trump has been stumbling. Biden's been from day one, from October seventh to this day, solid in what he said. John Kirby, as Phil pointed out, and uh, the White House press secretary have been solid. I, by the way, believe that she may have misheard that question, Phil. It was such a bizarre answer. Uh, you were there, but uh, you know she she kind of gave an incoherent answer. It was it was such a bad answer. She may have gotten away with it because nobody knows what she was talking about. But this country is behind Israel. The polls show that these, these, these numbers of the young people who, who, who equivocate, I mean, it makes you want to, you know, defund all the colleges in America. Okay. I, I, I get that. But these, what are these people going to do? I mean, Cornell West, come on, Andy. I mean, you're gonna have a two person race. They're not going to vote for the guy who says outright, uh, you know, I can't get a fair trial with Mexican judges and we ought to ban immigration from every Muslim country. Those those leftist, intersectionalist, pro-Palestinian progressives, whatever you want to call them, these happy idiots who march with the sign that says uh, trans people for Palestine, you know, trans queers for Palestine. That was my favorite placard. I mentioned this last week. I mean, Israel is the only country in the in that whole part of the world where they wouldn't be either tortured or imprisoned or put to death or, you know, exiled. This is a good thing for Biden. And it's one of those things in my, this is just my opinion. Now the, the, the good policy is the good politics. And I don't think he has anything to fear from his left flank on this. I think Biden's great vulnerability is not among liberals. His great vulnerability is among people who think he's too old for the job. Mm-hmm. And it's among independents who think, gee, I voted for this guy last time because of Trump, but do I really, shit, he's going to be 84 or 90 or whatever he's going to be by the time his term ends. And he's looked resolute. And so so what you have here is a guy whose problem isn't insufficiently being progressive. His problem is that he, if people think he's a ditherer and he hasn't dithered for one second. So if I'm advising him, I'd say, stay the course, sir. All right. Well, talk about dithering and talk about being too old for the job. There was someone this week who uh, kind of made the president look uh, old for the job, I think. And that's Carl, your friend, Gavin Newsom. He was in China uh, where he met with Chinese president uh, Xi Jinping. And uh, Gavin Newsom said of the trip, he said, I'm here with an open hand, not a closed fist. So, Carl, what is uh, your favorite governor trying to do? And um, what does it say, if anything, about his presidential ambitions? Well, I, I looked that one up, you know, the open hand, closed fist. I thought, okay, that's very sly. He's saying he's in he's into kung fu, not full contact karate, uh, which is a Japanese discipline. And then I realized I was probably thinking about it a little too much. No, that's um, good. I hadn't thought that. That's I, oh, thank you. I think when you go with an open hand, it means you're asking for, you know, alms or something. But I like or that better. I'm yeah. break your, or I'm gonna break your face and you'll never see it coming. Yeah, it depends. Um in <laughs> Listen, uh, for the record, if our listeners, if you're a first time listener, um, Gavin Newsom is not my friend, but Gavin Newsom's father was my friend, Bill Newsom, and that's actually no, that's no BS. Um, so the um, Tom and Andy, Phil doesn't do that because it reports directly to me, but Tom and Andy give me grief about my man love for Gavin <laughs> Newsom, and I have to, and I have to take that. Um. But in this case, what he said, look, he said divorce is not an option. And that, boy, that is real politic. Donald Trump said something similar. He said something similar about Russia, although 
I think we probably should divorce Russia, but I digress. Uh, Newsom went there and he did this visit. I think it's been six or seven years since the American governor visited. It's getting problematic. And this President Xi is a dictator in every real sense. He's a dictator. If you've read Susan Crabtree's coverage and other stuff we've had in our real clear, uh, in our freedom of religion coverage, you know, they've harvested organs, they've killed people in Falun Gong and Uyghurs, men in their 20s and there's prison camps for their organs. I mean, he's a real butcher. He is he's the world's most prolific human rights violator and a real threat to America. And so the question is, you know, when, when Newsom said, when Governor Newsom says divorce is not an option, what he's saying is maybe there's a better way than to have another Cold War. He went to Hong Kong. You know, did he talk about human rights as much as he should have? I don't, I don't know. I wasn't on the trip. Uh, probably not. What I was struck by, and I, I'm interested in your thoughts, Andy, and, and Phil and Tom's, you know, there's some indications that Barack Obama has never fully gone away. You know, he didn't leave Washington. He's got his aides and, and, and loyalists throughout the Biden administration. He's weighed in now in writing on Israel. You know, that this, you've got this president who's not fully an ex-president. And now we have this, the president and, you know, the Democratic president nominee in waiting, maybe Gavin Newsom. It's, it's like we have these two rival courts. And I'll be honest, I don't think it's altogether healthy. I, you know, I, I'm old school. You should have one president at a time. Well, Tom, uh, Washington Examiner had, uh, this was my favorite headline of the week. It said, uh, Gavin Newsom is China's newest useful idiot. Uh, they said the visit to China helps keep up the facade of big climate promises that never include any real action, which Democratic politicians keep fa- falling for, no matter how many times the CCP pulls the mat out from under them. Either he's doing the great great business for the uh, state of California, and he's just you know trying to make sure uh, that the you know the money keeps flowing in both directions, or he's uh, positioning himself to run for president soon later some point. Well, I don't think those things are mutually exclusive, right? I think he's doing both of those things at the same time. I this, you know, divorce is not an option. What a stupid phrase that is. Coming from a guy who's actually been divorced. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous, right? Of course divorce is an option. <laughs> so, Tom, you're being very literal. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a stupid thing to say, right? I mean, if he wants to say that we have to have engagement with China or we have to, you know, there are plenty of other ways, but I just thought that was a, just an idiotic phrase. I think it does speak to, I mean, obviously China is relative to the United States in general and California in particular, China is a huge, uh, a huge market, a huge player in it. And it is our biggest, I think, unquestionable uh, geostrategic adversary around the globe. I mean, I don't know how many of you watched 60 Minutes. I don't know how many people are watching 60 Minutes anymore, but they had this remarkable segment on last week where they had the five eyes, the head of the five intelligence services from around the, mm-hmm. the English speaking, right? It was, it was Australia, New Zealand, Canada, US, and, and Britain, MI5. And they all sat around the table and detailed in agreement how chi- the level of, of espionage that China is engaging in right now is unprecedented world history and and way more than all of the other countries on the globe combined. Um, so they are an absolute, absolute threat. I think they need to be viewed that way. And so in my you know estimation of Gavin Newsom, is he the kind of individual that would take sort of a real clear-eyed, steely view of, of China and the Chinese government to Carl's point and Xi Jinping as a leader? Yeah. 
I didn't get that sense. Not not instilling a lot of confidence there. But again, you know, he's not running for president right now. So, you know, that judgment, you know, kind of keep that in. I'll keep that in abeyance for now. But China has to be dealt with in some shape or form. So, Phil, how does the White House view this? Because uh, there is this, uh, maybe it's not a summit meeting, but there's a chance that uh, Biden and uh, Xi Jinping will meet. How does the White House view the good governor at this point? Now that the governor has made clear that he's not going to mount any type of primary challenge against the president, um, I think that with this one, the administration sort of gives him a head pat and then keeps him at arm's length. And that's because uh, this administration, according to a lot of Republicans, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo in particular, has been pretty aggressive with China. We just had the Australian prime minister in Washington, D.C. Um, to talk about the importance of, of AUKUS and that military alliance to contain Chinese military ambitions. I'm particularly interested, though, in Newsom's no-divorce rhetoric and his decision to get behind the wheel of a Chinese um, electric vehicle, because that that contrasts very much with what we've heard from a lot of Republicans who sort of take the line that Pompeo one time told me, which is, let the Chinese make beach balls, let them manufacture t-shirts. But when it comes to uh, durable goods, things that could at all be involved in um, the military or could erode our manufacturing base, no, you know, keep them at arm's length. You know, if it's going to be a divorce, make them sleep on the couch. But Newsom didn't do that. Um, you know, he went there talking about having an open hand. He sat behind the the wheel of one of these electric vehicles. And I find that interesting because, one, it's BYD, this company called Build Your Dreams, which received a $1 billion grant during COVID from the state of California. And two, this is absolutely a political liability because if you're looking at electric vehicles, um, and, and at least if you take the CEO of BMW seriously, they are saying that that transition to electric vehicles could erode Western automobile manufacturing. And, you know, the BMW CEO just warned European automakers that if the internal combustion engine is phased out and we go all electric, at least, you know, on that, that continent, the old world, that they would lose their manufacturing capability and they wouldn't be able to compete with the Chinese on EVs. That very much could be similar here in the United States. And you already have the consumer saying that they don't like EVs. So I know that's kind of a bank shot here, maybe, but don't be surprised if come 2028 or 2032, uh, you know, we see a attack ad uh, that features Newsom behind the, the car or the behind the wheel of a, you know, a Chinese auto manufacturer. It may not be just be one. He said he'd take two. Phil, he said he was driving and said, I'll take two. Uh, you guys may be underestimating just how much the Democrats despise Elon Musk. Maybe maybe they think that uh, China's better than Tesla. I don't know. Well, here's what the New York Times headline was. Uh, it said, Gavin Newsom wants to export California's climate laws to the world. Goes on to say the Democratic governor is supercharging climate policy and eyeing a future White House run. So um, from that, it appears, at least uh, according to the Times, that Gavin Newsom thinks leading on climate change and EVs and reducing greenhouse gases, it's all good politics that will actually help him if he decides to run for uh, national office. Uh, so what do you think, Carl? 
that question's got to be for Phil because his generation not only likes Hamas, they're very big on <laughs> they're very big on global warming. They think it's an existential threat worse than the second coming. Right, right, Philip? No one pays me for my opinions, so I played complete and total ignorance on all uh, moral and political questions. But <laughs> I've got to tell you, no one is paying enough attention to this electric vehicle question. I heard sustained booing and, and hissing in Iowa, in New Hampshire, in South Carolina, whenever the electric vehicle question came up. And obviously it was Republicans playing to their base and their supporters. But Philip, Philip, these are 70 year old white people in states uh, that grow ethanol. Certainly, certainly they would they would also freeze to death in an electric vehicle if they were stranded uh, by the side of the road. But but, you know, that almost happened to Tim Kaine. So I take your point. (laughs) But this idea that Governor Gavin Newsom for his great hair and no doubt wonderful diplomatic skills is going to be able to export the United States climate policies to China, something that John Kerry has already failed at. I mean, I'm curious if he bought any bridges or elevator passes when he was in China, because almost certainly they opened up a new coal-fired power facility uh, during his his trip. That's the, the pace that they are on. You, Philip, you remind me of you remind me of an old joke. You know, a guy. I, oh, if you like that, I'll say some swampland in Florida. Well, it turns out China's buying swampland in Florida, and if global warming happens, it won't be swampland anymore. It'll be very valuable real estate. Maybe they're one step ahead of us, Phil. But the 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 Republican critique of the Biden administration again and again is: look, if the United States was to go carbon neutral tomorrow and be zero worth in terms of emissions. There's no guarantee that India or China will as well. And if you look at the record of their development as as China continues to be energy starved because they're a net energy importer, these guys are not for a minute going uh, towards a, a green revolution. They're still opening coal-fired power plants for, for their manufacturing. Now, what they're doing is they steal our technology and then they replicate it and then they dump those products back in the US and we're buying you know solar panels that you know which is why we have been on this the trend has been to decouple from China move those jobs back home protect intellectual property make this stuff in America um and Gavin Newsom seems to want to do the opposite so he's swimming upstream on that one <laughs> i i want a big american v8 from before the 1970s when the EPA screwed everything up. I want displacement and horsepower. You know what? I'm going to give Phil the last word today on that. (laughs) I want to thank uh, Carl Cannon and Tom Babin and Phil Wegman. We're here most Tuesdays, Thursdays, Fridays. So bookmark this podcast. Come back often. As ever, I encourage you to go to Real Clear Politics, read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. That may be Phil Wegman this week. Uh, Thanks for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth.